A Stanford psychiatrist by the name of Erwin Yalom once wrote, I do not like to work with patients who are in love. Perhaps it is because of envy. I too crave enchantment. Perhaps it is because love and psychotherapy are fundamentally incompatible. A good therapist fights darkness and seeks illumination, while romantic love is sustained by mystery and crumbles upon inspection. I hate to be love's executioner. So the question I'd like to consider tonight is whether there's a kind of love that doesn't crumble upon inspection, that is compatible with and enhances illumination. Is there a difference between the enchantment of falling in love and that quality of being when we're standing in love? At times in our lives, we sometimes meet people who radiate very special qualities of love and kindness and care. People who seem to regard the whole world with loving regard, with loving care. There may be well-known people like the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr people who really stand out in this regard. It may be different teachers that we've been with, that we've met. Perhaps some of you have had occasion to at least greet His Holiness the Dalai Lama at different conferences or talks. And it's quite extraordinary, both just to watch, watch him, but also to be the recipient, a whole line of people can be walking by, receiving blessings. And when you're with him, even for those few moments, it feels as if to him you're the most important person in the world. And I think there is that genuine sense in him that at that moment we are, because that's who's in front of him. That quality of undivided attention with a kind heart, is so extraordinary. The teacher we've, many of us had in India, and you'll probably be hearing a lot about, the woman named Deepama. Had tremendous suffering in her life. And out of that suffering came the motivation to practice, and to practice with such courage and depth She was a woman of extraordinary attainments. She was living in Burma at that time, and even in a land known for great meditation masters, her attainments were remarkable. And the quality that was most manifest in the time that we knew her, when she had moved back to India, was this amazing feeling of loving kindness. She would run her hands over our heads just in blessing, And it was like a shower of light. Very simple. She was very poor. She lived in these two 
tiny rooms in you know, a poor section of Calcutta, and yet the quality of her love was so strong that we loved being there. We loved being in her presence, being bathed in that. She was always blessing. When she came to visit America a few times, she would bless the plane, and she would bless people's pets, and she would bless houses, and she would be happy, be happy, be happy. And that was it's like this love was just spilling out of her. Sometimes we encounter this quality in just ordinary people, you know, living, living their lives, people we come across, but who have this very special, this very special quality of care and love for beings, love for the world. And in all of these cases, it's not because of who we are or what position we have or fame or wealth or whatever. That love is there simply because we are fellow human beings. This special quality is the feeling of metta. And that word in Pali for loving-kindness. In Sanskrit, it's maitri. It's the generosity and the openness of heart that simply wishes beings to be happy. It's very simple. And although there is great benefit from this feeling of metta, great benefit comes to us because of it, Metta itself is not seeking any self-benefit. And that's what makes it so rare and so unique. Metta is not given in expectation of anything back. This has a very powerful consequence. Because there is no expectation of something in return for this gift of a loving feeling. It's not dependent on external conditions. It's not dependent on people or situations being a certain way or people behaving a certain way. It's just a freely offered gift. Be happy. And because it's not dependent on conditions, not dependent on people being a certain way. The consequence is that it's not easily changed. It's not easily shaken. It doesn't easily turn into anger or annoyance or irritation because there's no expectation in the gift of it. This is a very rare quality. What gives metta or loving-kindness a great expansiveness is that in the end, and we'll see that by the end of the, the retreat, it makes no distinction between beings. The feeling of metta is a wish for beings to be happy without distinction. It's not a feeling that's limited to those who are close to us. Now, usually when we think of ordinary love, we think, yes, we can have love 
ordinary love <coughs> for those who are close, people we're intimate with, our family, our friends. And so we might have this feeling of closeness with one person or two people or five people or even a hundred people. But I don't think anyone in this room feels close to everybody in the world. It doesn't have that capacity. And yet, metta precisely has this capacity, and that is what's so amazing about this quality, this potential. The feeling of metta, the feeling of loving-kindness, can embrace all beings, because it is the simple wish, may you be happy. You see the possibility, the very real possibility of settling back into the heart with that wish for all beings. It may take some practice, but it's not hard to imagine that we could rest in that place. May all beings be happy. It's for this reason, because metta has the capacity to embrace all beings, that the Buddha called it one of the boundless states. It's boundless in its capacity. There's great purity in moments of loving-kindness, because in a moment of metta, in a moment of that generosity of heart, the simple good wish, goodwill, there's nothing harmful mixed in. Nothing harmful to ourselves, nothing harmful to others. And therein lies its purity. In that sense, a moment of metta is like a moment of pure gold. It's not an alloy. That's the purity of that state. This feeling of loving-kindness, of goodwill, of care, of loving-care, they soften our hearts, they soften our minds, become smoother, gentler, more pliable. Because of this softening, and you know that, I mean, just think for a moment, when you're having these feelings of goodwill, of loving-kindness, like our hearts relax, our minds relax. We're not quite so judgmental. We're not so lost in our reactive minds. And because of this, we see more clearly in our lives, in our relationships, what mind states, what actions are skillful, what mind states, what actions are unskillful. We have some discernment possible because we're not caught up in the speed of our reactive judgmental mind. But when metta, loving-kindness, present, there's more spaciousness, there's more gentleness. We see more clearly. Because we see more clearly, we make wiser choices. As we make wiser choices in our lives, we become happier. As we become happier, we feel more metta. As we feel more metta, there's greater ease, there's greater discernment, there's wiser choices. We feel happier, we feel more metta. And so there's this spiral upwards in our lives. In this way, metta becomes the ground for wisdom. And wisdom becomes the ground for more metta, for more happiness. 
Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this so well. You know, the Vietnamese Zen master and peace activist and poet. He said, happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. And that's really the message of the Buddha. Happiness is available if we understand ourselves, if we understand how the mind works. We understand these different feelings in the heart. We actually can cultivate those that bring happiness. As metta, loving-kindness, becomes stronger within us, we feel more tolerant of ourselves and of others. And that, that quality of tolerance is a great gift both to ourselves and to the world. We begin to hold ourselves and hold others more lightly, you know, with more humor. So many of the problems in our own lives and in the world is just we take ourselves so seriously. And that lightens things up. And it brings a much greater sense of ease to how we live. Although it's easy to recognize as we talk of this, we can recognize the power and the beauty of this feeling of loving-kindness, goodwill, the benevolence of it. Still, there are many times in our lives when we're not feeling this way. We don't feel particularly loving or kind or benevolent. Our minds are not soft and pliable and spacious and expansive and inclusive and embracive. It would be (coughs) helpful to understand why. (coughs) If this possibility for happiness is there for us in our lives, why aren't we living in that space more? With some investigation, we can really begin to see some deep patterns that arise within us. In particular, there is one very powerful force in the mind that's very insidious because it comes masquerading as love. And so we get deceived. We get seduced by full love. And it actually obstructs and hinders and obscures our genuine capacity for loving kindness. It's called the near enemy of metta. And in Buddhism, that's kind of a technical phrase, the near enemy, which means that it's a state that looks like loving kindness, It has the appearance of love, but it's actually something quite different. And the confusion between these two states, between metta and its near enemy, has enormous implications in our lives. And it's seeing this distinction clearly, which 
will open up the possibility for us to begin to make wiser choices. The near enemy of metta, the state that comes masquerading as, as, as it, is the feeling or the quality of desire. Just think how, you know, how many popular songs confuse these two. I want you, I need you, I love you. As if somehow it's all the same thing. When we look more carefully, though, we see it's not the same thing at all. They're very different states. Just reflect for a moment on those times or those moments when you really have felt the most loving. Maybe it was some moments during the day today, as you were doing the phrases, maybe some time in your life you know, with your family or friends, or reflect on those moments when you really felt genuinely loving. What was that like? What was that feeling? My experience of that, when I'm feeling most loving, it's an energy of just giving. It's it's like an energy coming out wishing well. It's, It's like, it's a generosity of the heart. It's a gift of loving feeling not wanting anything. Now think of those moments when you've been most filled with desire. And just reflect on what that feeling is like. What's the feeling of desire like? What's the energy of it like? My experience is that it's just the opposite. It's not this giving, it's not this generosity, it's a wanting, it's a holding, it's a taking. They're two completely opposite energetic movements. And so it's very strange that they've gotten so intertwined because they're so different. And yet for most of us in close relationships, it's very hard to separate out desire and love. You know, and for many people it's even hard to imagine how they could be separate because we haven't paid attention to the difference. We can see how both of these are working, even in the simplicity of this retreat, as you're doing the loving-kindness practice, doing the phrases. Now one would think, yes, I'm sitting here, I'm practicing metta, may you be safe, may you have mental happiness, may you have physical happiness, It's just the gift of loving wishes. But we can be doing this, and I've experienced this often in my practice when I've done intensive metta. I can be doing the phrases, sort of expressing these loving wishes, with one eye and are watching how I'm doing. You know, oh, am I getting concentrated yet? Am I becoming more loving? In those moments, it's about me. It's not about the person. It's not the expression of metta. And so, in the very practice itself, desire creeps in. When I was a kid, about seven or eight years old, I planted my first and 
might have been my last as well, only garden. Yeah, and I, so I spent a lot of time kind of preparing the ground and planted the seeds. And then, you know, after some time, the, the green of the carrot tops started, you know, coming up through the ground. And I got so excited, every time I saw something popping up through the ground, I would pull it out to see how it was doing. <laughs> so much for my gardening career. In exactly the same way as that is not the way to grow a garden, constantly checking on ourselves as we're doing the metta practice is not the way to grow metta. It's not about, are we getting more concentrated? Is our hearts opening? Are we feeling more loving? Rather, it's coming back again and again just to the simplicity, the purity of a simple wish. It's not about us. We're practicing that generosity of the heart, which is a simple wish to a particular person. May you be happy. Coming back to the simplicity of that, the purity of that. So that's one way desire gets mixed up with metta, where the near enemy obscures the simplicity of the loving feeling. Desire and love get confused in other kinds of situations in the world where these two feelings get mixed up and we're not seeing clearly. Quite a few years ago, I was visiting a friend in Western Mass, lives out in the country. I was going down this, taking a walk down this country road, passing a house, and in front of the house there was this small but very aggressive dog that was barking quite in a very non-meta-like fashion. <laughs> yeah, and it was kind of, you know, coming and snarling and growling, and I'm walking by and I'm like, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy. And it came over and bit me. <laughs> and after it bit me, I sort of reflected on the power of my meta. <laughs> and... in the great truth of the moment, I realized that it wasn't metta at all. I mean, I was saying, be happy, be happy, be happy, but I was really wanting that dog to stay away. You know, was, my mind was just filled with desire and wanting and aversion. But in the moment of saying it, I was deluding myself. And I was saying the words, I was going through the form, be happy, be happy, but it wasn't the feeling inside. So again, we have to pay attention, we have to see not just a question of repeating a formula. It's where are we with it? Is it really coming from a kind intention or not? And so we need to be honest. We need to see clearly. Some, in some situations, desire and genuine metta get intertwined. Both are present. Life is complex. It's not always so simple you know, that we can separate it out clearly. In many of our relationships or situations, they get mixed up. And it's very helpful to be able to distinguish them. So we see what's what. 
One situation came to mind as I was reflecting on this. It's a story from my early years of practice in India. And if those of you who've been to India know that just an ever-present reality uh, is the relationship that, that we have, and especially as Westerners, with beggars. You know, and in Bodh Gaya, there are lots of beggars. And even if one doesn't have a lot of money, still in comparison, we have a lot. So I was in the bazaar, you know, one day just buying some oranges, and a little beggar boy came up, and in a moment of spontaneous, you know, connection, so I, I gave him one or two of the oranges that I bought, and he walked away. And when he walked away, there was zero acknowledgement. I mean, I wasn't expecting effusive things. <laughs> and it was not such, you know, such a magnanimous gift. But I just thought, just that simple human interaction, you know, a slight gesture of kindness, that there would be a nod, there would be a smile, there would be something. But there was nothing. <laughs> I just kind of took the oranges and left. And it was so revealing to me because I saw that, yes, I thought there was, the initial motive was, was one of metta, but right along with it, there was some expectation. There was that, the expectation of something coming back. So that was interesting, just to see in a very simple interaction all the different kinds of mind states that can be operative, and often conflicting ones. Metta is one feeling, just that generosity of the heart. Wanting, desire, expectation is quite another feeling, and it's not metta. Why do I spend so much time on this? Because to the degree that we can really begin to hone in on our own minds and begin to see with discernment and clearly what the feeling of metta is in its purity, what the feeling of desire is or wanting. As we begin to recognize each of them and see them clearly, then we have the possibility of making some choices. Which feelings are we cultivating? Which feelings can we see and simply let go of? This becomes our practice. And it will have tremendous implications in our relationships with people. Where do fear and insecurity and possessiveness and projection and disappointment, where do they come from? Are they born from desire or from loving kindness? These can be major feelings in our lives. So are we just drowning in them, are we just lost in them, not knowing what's going on? Or can we begin to see the causes, the conditions? What's giving rise to these feelings of envy, of jealousy, of all the things I mentioned?
Are they born from desire? Are they born from metta? We should look, we should say. Which of these two feelings, desire or loving-kindness, bring about states of peace, of happiness, of ease? You shouldn't believe any of this. All of this is a suggestion to look, to investigate, to really see each one for ourselves how our lives are unfolding. What brings happiness? What brings suffering? The distinction, seeing clearly the difference between the energy of wanting, the energy of desire, and the energy of loving-kindness is a key mixed metaphor going on here. It'll be a key into the door, (laughs) opening up a whole new level of understanding of how our lives are unfolding and where we're going and whether we want to go there. This doesn't mean, as we begin to make this discernment, it doesn't mean that in the first moment of our metta phrases, may you be happy and peaceful and whatever, that in the first moment or day of doing our metaphrases, that all desire and wanting is going to disappear. And so it's not to have some unrealistic expectation of what comes from this discernment, but it's a beginning. As we distinguish between the two, then we're able to make choices. We see what is worth cultivating. What do we want to let go of? And as we become more familiar with the feeling of loving-kindness, as we learn to recognize it, and as we practice it, it becomes the way we are rather than something we do. It becomes the space out of which we live. As we explore the feeling and the meaning of loving-kindness, some people connect more with the kindness part than with the loving part. And I think it could be helpful just to unpack this a little bit. When we speak of love, love is a very grand word. It's a big word. Subtle and very complex in its meanings. And so much of our understanding of love has been conditioned by the movies and books and advertising and by our own fantasies. You know, and so we've created this huge, complex picture of what love is. Because of this, people often have the feeling that they're not loving enough. Because we've created such a grandiose notion of love that we feel we don't measure up, we don't have enough, and we're not loving enough. Because we are expecting, and this can happen in meditation retreat like this, we have some expectation that love means some great ecstatic feeling and that we should be carried away on waves of bliss. And here we are just, may you be happy, may you be, uh, you know, and so then we feel disappointed or discouraged when these waves of bliss are not engulfing us. 
So for some people, kindness and emphasizing the kindness part of loving kindness may be a much better place of connection. Because kindness is a much more humble word. You know, kindness is very down to earth. It's very pragmatic. We all, I think, have very direct experience, both the giving and receiving end of what it means to be kind. It just feels like there's a great earthy simplicity to it. It's a, it's a kind of friendly and open responsiveness to the world around us. Kindness is that basic openness of heart that is simply letting the world in. Just as a simple example, this is a story told to me about somebody who was on a metta retreat one time. And it was in the middle of winter, and he was uh, walking you know, from the retreat site. He was walking past one of the neighbors who was pretty, pretty gruff and angry person. You know, and this neighbor had exchanged a lot of angry words and not, not, a, not an agreeable person at all. And so many of the you know, people at that retreat just kind of you know, avoided, avoided contact. This one person was, who didn't know any of this, he, he was just taking a walk, and it had been a big snowstorm, and this person was outside shoveling snow. And so the yogi stopped and just started chatting, and, and he said, boy, a lot of snow, it had been you know, three feet of snow had fallen. And the guy was pretty, you know, not very pleasant. And the yogi was saying, it must be hard to be shoveling all this. And the guy said, yeah, especially if you have a bad heart. And that's all. They had a few more words, and the yogi just started walking on. And then after about five or ten steps, it kind of sunk in, you know, what the exchange actually was. And he went back, and he offered to you know, shovel out the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the path. And they got talking more and they went in and they spent the next hour you know, talking with one another and connecting. And when he told me this, it was such, it was just a great story for me because so easily we live in the world of you know, projections about other people and we miss just the basic commonality, the basic connection of humanity. And in this situation, and this is getting back to kindness. In some way, kindness best expresses. It's not that this yogi had great feelings of love for this guy. It was just very. It was just a simple act of kindness. So it's something very simple, very accessible to us when we're there, when we're paying attention, and it's helpful to recognize that metta is this quality. It's not something grandiose. It's something very simple. When we understand this, then we actually can connect with it in a much easier way. So the question now, now after this first day of the retreat, how can we cultivate this feeling of loving-kindness? 
this basic feeling of goodwill, of kindness, of connection. As Sharon mentioned this morning, and I just want to re-emphasize, the Buddha talked very specifically about how the cause for metta to arise is the focusing on the good qualities of people. Now, it's not something we're always in the habit of doing. And as was mentioned, we may be in quite the other habit, you know, where our mind tends to see what's wrong with people and all the many, many judgments that go through the mind. So it's a practice, the practice of turning our attention to seeing what's good. And it is a question of being open to seeing the whole person. So we're not living in delusion about them. But even as we're seeing the whole, what are we focusing on? What are we giving our attention to? If we give our attention always to what's wrong, what's disagreeable, what comes up are feelings of judgment and irritation and annoyance. That's where those feelings come from. If we practice turning our attention... And I emphasize it is a practice. We can can practice doing that, turning our attention to seeing what's good. What comes from that are feelings of kindness. It's not rocket science. It's just where we're turning our attention. Everybody has at least one good quality. (laughs) Even really obnoxious people. I mean, there's always something, even if it's just our common humanity. W.H. Auden, the poet, had a wonderful line just expressing this understanding that we're all a package of qualities. We're all a mix, you know, of agreeable and disagreeable qualities. He wrote, Love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. As we do that, as we begin to just open and focus, and really, in a way, it's almost seeking out, making a point of seeing the good qualities in people. First of all, it brings out those very qualities in them. And we find ourselves abiding very naturally and very simply in feelings of goodwill. This is what the cause, the cause of metta to arise. It's not that we never get annoyed or that we never get angry. These things, these things will come. The Dalai Lama said, sometimes I do get angry, but deep in my heart, I don't hold a grudge against anyone. You know, I I love that teaching from him, as as so many of his teachings, because it's just so down-to-earth. It's acknowledging how we are, but always pointing to a possibility. Yeah, I do get angry, but deep in my heart, I don't hold a grudge against anyone. So can we practice in that way? That is the practice of metta, of goodwill. 
of kindness. One of the great gifts to us as we begin to seek out and see and respond to the good qualities of others is a feeling and a quality that the Buddha called one of the most precious and rare qualities in the world. He said that is the feeling of gratitude. And it really is rare and precious. Now we so easily take for granted or forget the kindnesses that people show us. And we just we just go on with our lives. And we often don't open with that sense of gratitude, of appreciation, which is such a beautiful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling to have. And when we have that feeling of gratitude, metta flows very naturally. Like metta is the fountain, the fountain out of that gratitude. One of the things I most love about meditation retreats is the mind begins to quiet down, and it may not have quite gotten there yet, but you know, over these next days it will. As the mind begins to quiet down, it's like we start thinking of people we may not have even thought of in years. You know, in the silence and the stillness of our own minds and the kind of the goodwill in our heart. It's like people start coming to mind. It was amazing. I mean, when I was doing my first intensive meta retreat, this was years ago, I was thinking about my third grade teacher and you know, people, friends of my parents that I hadn't even thought of. And they would just come up. And because there's, there was very little defensiveness, or very, you know, it was just in that place of silence. Natural feeling of, of metta, of loving kindness, of gratitude would emerge. And to see that it's really a part of us, and it's a question of accessing it, it's a question of clearing away what's obscuring it. All of this, you know, seeing the good in people, and opening to the gratitude as people come to mind, all of this is woven right into this intensive practice of metta that we're doing on the retreat. We're practicing collecting the attention every time the mind wanders, bringing it back to the phrases, gathering in the scattered mind, One understanding might be helpful with regard to right effort. Four phrases. Trying to have loving feeling for four phrases in four phrases is way too much. Three phrases is too much. Two phrases is too much. If you sit with the intention to connect with that basic feeling of goodwill for a single phrase. 
That's your effort. You're not thinking about the other three. It's just that phrase. May you be safe. Connect with the meaning. Really focus. And this is an active part of the meditation. It's focusing the mind into, kind of entering into the meaning of the phrase. So it's not just, as I was saying to that dog, be happy, be happy, be safe. It's not just having the phrase run through the mind. Take the time. It's a single phrase, just one phrase. Take the time. Actively bring your attention right into the meaning of it. And as you do it, you'll see over time that the meaning begins to grow and nuances. So we focus in on the meaning. We connect it or we understand that there's an intention behind that phrase. It's an intention of kindness. Like we're thinking of a certain person, whether it's ourself or the benefactor, and there's a kind intention. There's a loving intention expressed in the phrase. May you be safe. It's focusing in on the meaning, connecting with that basic intention of kindness, and staying connected with the person you're sending it to. So it's these three aspects which all weave together. And then you do it for the next phrase, but just one at a time. Sharon mentioned this morning she, she had a friend who thought that you know, the more phrases they said, the more, the more meta they chalk up. That was me. <laughs> she was being very kind. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and I gave myself this incredible headache. <laughs> so I know from personal experience that it's not about that. It's taking it easy, it's taking it slow, it's taking each phrase, and it's like savoring the phrase, savoring the meaning. And then the practice just gets so wonderful, so delightful. For this week, you really have one of the best jobs in the world. Your only job, just think of this, your only job for this week to sit here and wish well to people. I mean, that is incredible. It's a, it's a great blessing to sort of have created this opportunity for yourself where that's all you have to do. That's your job. It's a great job. It's not always easy. You know, and you'll come up against all the hindrances and restlessness and judgments and all the rest. But if you come back just to the simplicity of metta, of really connecting with what that means, that simple expression of goodwill, it's a simple expression of kindness. It's not grandiose, it's not huge. Just basic goodwill towards ourselves, towards others, 
So even when we get caught up in all of the different hindrances, we come back to that simplicity. This is the great gift of the retreat, you know, as we cultivate and we practice this quality. I'd like to close with some lines from Rilke, the poet, who wrote so beautifully about love. So those who love must try to act as if they had a great work to accomplish. They must be much alone and go into themselves and gather and concentrate themselves. They must work, they must become something. For the more we are, the richer everything we experience is. And those who want to have a deep love in their lives must collect and save for it and gather honey. Each phrase another gathering, a drop of honey. Let's sit for just a couple of moments. Relax the body, relax the heart. Few full breaths. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.